And I think that's really important in life. When I look at so many people today, including myself at moments in my career, for sure, and younger people who I try to mentor, it's like, just have to trust the process. It's going to work out. It may not work out the way you expected it to, but it may work out actually in a way that's completely unexpected. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David Wright here, and I'm your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And this afternoon, I am lucky enough to be joined by Brad Class. Brad, it's a pleasure to have you on. Hey, David. Thanks for having me today. Looking forward to it. Of course. So, Brad, I know you have a few things going on, but for those of our listeners who may not know, can you tell everyone a little bit about your current role? Yeah, so I currently serve as the advisor to the chief information officer and the head of digital assets for Franklin Templeton, which is headquartered in San Mateo, California. Those of us involved in the financial industry certainly know Franklin Templeton. So I'm going to look forward to kind of learning more about some of the stuff that you guys are up to there. Want to dive into a little bit about your backstory as an executive. But before we do, we like to start the episode with just one piece of actionable advice you might look to leave our listeners with today? I guess there's two that come to mind. The first one is trust but verify, right? I think it's important to approach all problems with an open mind, to think about what others are considering. Immediately, like if the response is, hey, I don't believe it, and I tend to be a contrarian. So commonly, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. However, I think it's important to keep an open mind when you think about what your first reaction in is like, okay, what I tend to trust is this is incorrect. But let's go out and verify that, right? Let's collect data, let's talk to people in the marketplace, whether they're friends, whether they're competitors, people with opposing views, and see if that moves your position. In my career, what I've learned is definitely to trust what you've learned over time. But if you don't go out to the market and try to validate things, you could be a sitting duck in that the market moves in a direction that you don't expect. And then subsequently, your organization or your business is left in, a, in an incompetitive state or uncompetitive state. Yeah, that's great advice. It's relative to a a situation that I just encountered too, where we had a vendor who was advertising a particular API integration as native, but there was a third party and the underlying client wouldn't have known that if we hadn't kind of unearthed that for them, right? If they were just trusting that blindly. 
So I just, I think that's, it's relative in a, a number of different senses. Thanks for that, Brad. Let's dive into a little bit about how you started out and how you came to be the advisor to the CIO of it and digital assets of a huge financial organization. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your story. Yeah, sure. So I actually went to college to become a veterinarian. I'm a builder and I like to build things. And at the end of the day, I got all the way up to going to vet school and realized that I wasn't going to be able to change the world because there was these laws that prohibited me from inventing things that I believed could be done. In hindsight, those laws actually provide frameworks. And I would say that it's very applicable to my career, that those frameworks allow you to then think about how do you create scalable, repeatable process. Just by chance, I got out of school and I took a quick temporary gig at somewhere called Benham Capital. Jim Benham was at Merrill Lynch when he came to Merrill and said, hey, the U.S. Treasury bill is going from $1,000 to $10,000. Most people can't buy it. Let's invent a money market fund. Merrill Lynch passed. Jim went on to build his own business. And what I learned very quickly about myself and that was asset management, investment banking, capital markets very much fit me. But I was more of an institutional guy than a retail guy. Then I sought out a job and I luckily, just by chance, happened to get an offer to go be a consultant at what was then called Wells Fargo Nico Investment Advisors, a company founded by Fred Brower. Fred Brower went to school at the University of Chicago, had two professors who had a thesis about indexing. Fred came to California, was doing his PhD at Stanford and was hired by Wells Fargo to start what truly was the first S&T 500 index fund. I joined a number of years later in 91. We were 300 people managing $400 billion. Well, that doesn't sound like a lot today. That was an immense amount of money. And we, at that time, we were the world's largest index fund working with investors from around the globe. Super cool. So Brad, what's one of the most important things that you learned in your life along the course of, of your career? And what was life like before learning it and after learning it? So as it related to the early stages of my career, after I joined what was then with me, we were bought by BGI. And I learned a couple of things there. The number one thing I, I learned was that investing should be transparent. And that was a model what we did at Wesnico BGI was producing index funds. And a lot of people say, look, indexing is easy. Actually, it's the most difficult type of investing in the world because what you realize quickly is that when you make a mistake, it's completely transparent to your investors. There are very few businesses in the world where when a corporation makes a mistake at any level, that the customer actually is immediately impacted by it and is transparent. And I say that because in an index fund, you have to mirror what the index produces. Those indexes are based on effectively mathematical calculations and any mistakes completely show up as what we would call tracking error between your rate of return and that of the index itself. So what I came away from that was, hey, look, and I'm a person who likes to live up to my word, but you know, you need the data and the analytics to show to clients that you are delivering the services that they expect and that the outcomes they expect can be achieved. And that's a very difficult thing to do in any business. When your feet to the fire, like in the index business, it's easily proven. But how do you go forward and build businesses where people believe that you're going to do what you say you do, that you're building trust with relationships? And these are things that at the end of the day, reflect on your own personal belief system, as well as reflect on the services that you provide. And in my own experiences, if you do what you say you're going to do, you don't overpromise, but you deliver and achieve expectations, you win the trust and souls of your customers. And then those customers will 
grow with you over time. They'll stick with you through difficult times. And most importantly, they'll serve as the referrals that you need to scale your business and attract the other types of clients that you're trying to bring into your organization. I love that. And I think taking it a step further, even when we have, you know, in my experience, when bad things happen, either for my organization, our clients, or for a vendor that I'm, you know, soliciting services from, for example, Delta, right? If a flight's delayed, if something happens, the more that my expectations are managed, the less of an impact it has on my ability to handle the situation, but also my view of them as my vendor, because things happen and it's understandable. But the more that I can manage expectations, the more I can keep my clients happy and that sort of thing. So it just makes a lot of sense. Let's share a story about that. So when I left BGI, we went to Montgomery Securities or a group of us did to launch what was called the prime brokerage business, little known in those days. So we were servicing hedge funds. We bought a little URL called primebroker.com for $9.99 since in 1998. And our mm. competitors who were the Morgan Stanleys of the world, the Goldman Sachs and the others who were extremely well capitalized sort of laughed at us and said, who would ever want you to put the reporting on the internet, right? Who would want you to put this valuable information? That approach and process really changed the types of clients we attracted. And if I fast forward over those years to 2008, we built a large business over time and was based on client service and technology and just out delivering what we could deliver versus our peers. Now, the most important thing that happened in that process was that we built the trust of those clients of ours. So specifically in December of 2007, Ken Lewis came into our offices in San Francisco and said, Ken Lewis was the CEO of by B of A, by the way, and said, you know, this business is like picking up nickels on a freeway, although we had never had any large operating losses. And again, we're talking about B of A in December 2007. Well, Ken put us up for sale with no identified buyer. You can imagine in that scenario, customers of ours were pretty nervous and our competitors were banging on the doors above our clients. We managed to retain all our customers through that process by being out and having built trust. When Lehman failed in October of 2008, we had just been sold to BNP Paribas. Lucky for us, BNP Paribas, along with JP Morgan, were the two banks across the globe that actually had, at that time, a fortified balance sheet. As a result of the relationships that we had built and the trust we had built over time, our customers came to us when Lehman failed because many of them were on the verge of going out of business because many of these investment banks had to call the capital back that they had extended in the form of leverage or credit. And one of the things I'm most proud about in my career is that I was managing the Western region of the U.S. And we were able to secure multiple billions of dollars in rescue financing for our clients and actually kept them in business. And the reason we succeeded, even though we had a brand new owner, was that I was able to go to the customer and say, okay, what do you need? Why do you need it? And how do I know it's money good? And those relationships that we had built over 10 years with some customers, a little shorter with others, proved to be the most important factor in terms of them being transparent with me and the trust that they had in me that I would go to bat for them with a new owner and be able to receive that rescue financing. The end result of it was our clients survived and every one of them ended up paying us back. Wow, that's significant. But what about a time that you were challenged or that you failed over the course of your career, but 
you took a very profound lesson or it was a, a moment of personal and professional growth for you. Obviously, I have plenty, but you know, <laughs> we, all, we, we all do, I suppose. I don't know that I'm going to be great let we answer for you here, but for me, I don't really view that anything I've done has been a failure because when I look back, there were lessons that I learned every single time. And it was more about how do I take those lessons and how do I transform who I am? Because I have to own my own behavior. I have to own my own actions. I can't change anyone else, but I can change myself. And I think there's many times that I got knocked down and I had to get back up and I got knocked down and I had to get back up. And there were many times in businesses where I put forth a business plan. I was building a business and that business got stopped. And then I had to pivot and move to another idea, if you will, and then get the buy-in of the executive teams and get the funding required and build those businesses. So even in the businesses that succeeded, whether that was our securities lending business at BGI or the electronic trading business I bet built for B of A, and the startups that I've done, many of those in their current first form may not have succeeded or they succeeded and then began to fail. I think the real key thing was to realize that persistence is what ultimately pays off. And when something is not working, you need to get down to root cause analysis. Because if you don't have root cause analysis, you're never going to get to the underlying problems and be able to solve them. And maybe that means you've got to shut down what you're doing and restart in a different venue or restart in a different skin or significantly pivot. But from my own experience, right, you just don't quit. You don't give up and you keep searching for the root cause analysis. And then when you find your cause, you try to build around that. And for me personally, leading up my professional career, I grew up as a child who had significant learning disabilities and I wanted to quit a lot. Repeatedly, I wanted to quit. And arguably, there was a point in my life where I felt defeated. And it wasn't until I met someone who was in a much worse situation than I was, who had actually taken themselves from where they were to what they became. And that inspired me actually not to quit. And I would say that those people that did that for me or this individual that did that for me arguably gave me the courage to change myself and address the own learning challenges that I grew up with so that I would have the resiliency that I have today. Wow, that's significant. Yeah, I mean, one of the first things you said, and you circled back to it at the end about, I need the courage to be able to change the things about myself that I can change and the wisdom to understand the outside elements that I cannot affect, effectively change. Because the more headspace that I use, you know, thinking about those aspects of life that I can't control, the less that I'm focused on the aspects of myself or my life that I can actually impact. Be the change you want to see in the world, right? And that goes well beyond work. I mean, what I've learned in a difficult way is that the person that I show up as every day at my house is probably the person that I'm really getting with my family is probably the person that I'm going to be when I go to work. Like we can try to wear a different mask when we're at work. And some people have said we all wear different masks and to different people, those masks are different based on our relationships. But I wouldn't be afraid to develop who you are as an individual. If that means that I've done plenty of counseling in my life and things that happened to me as a kid, coaching and ongoing development of those things, because we all suffer from these things. You know, professionally or personally, we've all had trauma, I think, in our career and in our personal life. And our ability to own those things and accept those things that actually, they didn't just fall on you. 
it's how you respond to them that created that damage. And now you're accountable for fixing it. And I think that's true in my professional life. And that's been true in my personal life. And I haven't always been good at it. But it's that determination to keep going and keep working at it and to keep getting better. Because people would tell me all the time, hey, man, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And I always approach my career as a sprint. The reality was when I took the time to be thoughtful about what I was doing, even if I was pivoting during the course of my work, that proved to be more successful than just trying to, if you will, run an idea right down through the defensive line, regardless of how many people were going to try to tackle you. And I would say that those moments when I actually took a step back and reflected on that or was able to leverage resources like my business coach, my therapist that I still use today to grow from either business events, traumas of the past have led to the most significant joys in my life or the most significant moments of fulfillment after having come out on the other side. So great stuff. So I want to get into a little bit about current role. Before I do, I just always like to ask favorite book or literary piece, either that you're reading currently or all time, your choice. Well, let's talk about all time. So my favorite piece, I was at school at UC Davis when I was working through my undergraduate program and I got to do a course actually that was supposed to be finance. It was actually taught by a gentleman who had worked under a gentleman named Stephen Covey, Dr. Stephen Covey, who came up with some profound work, something called the seven habits of highly effective people. And the opportunity to actually then act as a teaching assistant and read through Dr. Covey's material, actually work a little bit with Dr. Covey was probably the most profound thing that happened to me in my life in terms of understanding what life was about, what the basic operating rules were like. You know, don't kill the goose that lays the golden egg. Understanding that things can truly be win-win. Not that it's easy to find win-win, but they truly can be win-win. And how you think about that from how you treat other people. Because ultimately, business is about the way you treat people. And if you're trying to negotiate for something, how can you find a solution that actually meets two people's needs? In my relationship with my own family, with my wife, with my parents, trying to find those situations now that help me. And it's not easy. And I often fail at it. I think Dr. Covey's work was incredibly important to who I became and just the kindness and careness that he demonstrated to myself and the way I watched him coach, you know, large organizations and businesses to think about that transformation is this journey and that it's something you have to build. You have to build that trust. How I show up and how I behave is more important than what I say. So for me, the most important thing that I read probably growing up was Dr. Covey's work around seven habits of highly effective people. The second most important thing actually I'm reading right now, which I really enjoy, and it's a pretty groundbreaking book titled The Body Keeps the Score. And really this work by Bessel van der Klok, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, talks about the experiences that we have in life. And then it's just not stored in the brain. It's stored in the subconscious mind. And in my case, it's actually stored in the body. So let's say you show up to a job interview. You have butterflies in your stomach, so to speak. Well, your body is keeping the score about what you're experiencing actually inside your body and the importance of understanding how does that affect how you show up? How do you respond to those things when you feel nervous in a meeting or you know you didn't do your best and your boss is going to call you on it or you're going home to see your family and 
there's something that's going to be uncomfortable to talk about, but you feel it in your body. And I think it's really important what I've learned in my own life, my own personal development is not to ignore that stuff. And when I go through, I should say, I've learned that now only later in life. For me, looking at those things and understanding that who we are as human beings, that's a big area of what I focus on in my own personal growth, that we are not just mind and body or brain and mind, but the combination of these things and that neurologically, how we show up at work, how we show up in our relationships is actually tied to how we feel these things. So when people say that feelings aren't important or there's no place for feelings in business, I would completely disagree with that. I think it's a signal to something about yourself that you're either uncomfortable with, that you don't like, that's a difficult situation that you're facing and the ability to be vulnerable with those around you, those on your team, those that you report into really changes the way that people perceive you, both as an individual in your personal relationships and also the odds of you being successful in your professional relationships. So huge. I try to encourage my team to be vulnerable about that stuff, particularly because I've experienced it going into a boardroom full of people that I have to present to or going into walking into a difficult conversation, whatever it might be. And I've also learned strategies like I'm a huge proponent of meditation, self-talk, like all these different, even if it's not meditation, just certain breathing exercises, like certain practical things and then also certain things that you know learned over time to hopefully or, or in a lot of instances counteract now some of that was rewiring and it took longer than just you know an exercise in the moment but it all started with being vulnerable with people that had gone before me you know to your point before someone who had walked through that already and could share their experience of how they did it yeah i think that's really well said i am um... I'm going to put in the shameless plug here for someone who helped me significantly. His name is John Bruna, B-R-U-N-A. Believe his website is a meaningfullwife.us. John's a really interesting guy, and I've been fortunate enough to get to know him here where I live now. And he actually grew up um, an alcoholic, a drug addict. He had a child. He lost his child to his wife. He was living on the streets of LA. And eventually he found his way and he spent Many years, actually, he ended up becoming a Buddhist monk, practicing the Tibetan tradition. And today he's no longer practicing in a monastery, but he presents some very sound ways that, for example, meditation has been done for thousands of years. He breaks it down in a way that, you know, I think commonly we tend to think, you know, you have to be in the certain lotus position and your hands out and all this. And he brings it back to actually a very simple way to perform it, simply sitting and he talks about really that we have, I'm going to use my terms, a monkey mind. We all have this monkey mind. And how do we focus? And it goes back to this link about my brain, mind, and body is actually focusing on the body and breathing from certain places and seeing what comes up from you by just focusing on your breath. And not just the breath that way, but places in the body where you feel it. And as a means to really stopping this monkey mind. So for example, I find all too often in my personal life and even in business, I feel like I got to run in a hundred miles an hour and I'm trying to run through all these challenges and look for the common thread, right? I'm trying to get to root cause and solve for problems. And even you can hear it in my voice here as my tone might get a little accelerated. But what I found with John's work, it's incredibly effective. It's very cheap to engage on. And he brings to bear, right? The thoughts of a practice 
in the Tibetan tradition that's been going on for thousands of years. He's met on several occasions with the Dalai Lama and he's a very simple, but practical way to actually the implementation. It's not a self-serving plug, but for those that are looking for something like this, you know, John Bruner's work, you can look him up, D-R-U-N-A, he's in, based in Cardindale, Colorado. He has these online sessions every day. He calls it mindfulness and recovery. He's just got a very nice approach. And I've talked, worked with a lot of people, and I've just found like, John makes it so easy and so simple to make it actionable. Definitely going to check it out, for sure. So Brad, you're getting into a little bit more about your current role. So you're the, yep. you know, an advisor at Franklin Templeton. What does your day-to-day look like? And what is your vision for the organization as it's derived from kind of the overall mission of Franklin and Templeton? So my day-to-day role, let's just break it into two pieces. The primary mission of the organization now is really reinventing what an asset management platform looks like. Franklin's $1.6 trillion today. They just acquired Putnam. They've made a whole bunch of acquisitions in the past, moving them from, we'll call it a traditional mutual fund manager into the institutional space, moving out of the traditional financial markets into we'll call alternatives, private equity, private credit, private middle market lending, fund to funds, the sole space. And clearly in this business, what's happened is you've seen this large disaggregation. As these asset managers in general try to grow, the most logical place for them to grow is in alternatives because the fees are higher. Challenges now, you're presented with all kinds of different workflows. And at the core of those different workflows is data. And I wrote a recent article for a group called Artesium that I published on LinkedIn. And for me, people say data is the oil. Well, I'll disagree with that. Data is oxygen. And in money management, it's all about oxygen. So trying to really elevate the way we use data in order to do really three things. The first is how does it help us raise money by providing better information to our clients? It also then helps us retain assets and our customers. And then how does it drive what I'll call is a return or alpha? How do we differentiate what we do? How do we tell better stories to our clients? How do we tell better stories to regulators? How do we build those relationships? So as we look to reinvent this infrastructure, right, the core of what I'm really focused on is, hey, we can operate software. It's important. But the most important thing that we own is the talent that we can attract and the data that we produce as an organization. Super cool. What about some of the biggest challenges that are facing you specifically in doing all of that? So I think like any organization, it's the legacy infrastructure that we have. This is not like saying, okay, sounds great, but how do we get to implementation, right? And so it's about pulling apart the different layers of what that means, the different streams of data, the different ways that in our particular case, that it's complete, it's fragmented because we've allowed these businesses to operate somewhat autonomously, right? That was part of the pitch in acquiring them. So really it's about rethinking that model. And I would say, as I rethink that model, not only is the model, I have to dive down to root cause and then start to draw, if you will, Venn diagram, some sort of workflow that sort of explains like from this root cause, how does this proliferate through everything we do as an organization? And then come back to the point of, okay, here's a root cause. What is an actionable roadmap? And we start with the root cause, the most fundamental set of data, which sounds really boring in investment management, but it's really mastering the underlying instrument information. Who issues it? What are the instruments they've issued, right? What are the attributes of those instruments? Really boring stuff. 
But that fundamentally ties to everything that we do as an organization. And if we can deliver that set of data as a starting point, for example, right? What is that root cause? That set of data, if we can normalize it or present it in a way that is harmonized across every aspect of our organization, we create a common language. So whether I'm talking to a fellow employee about a problem that I'm having operationally or an idea that I want to share across my investment team or an investor I have to talk to or board reporting or a regulator the organization may have to speak to, from that standpoint, the data across the organization is harmonized and the way we report, the way we have a common language, the way we think about our business and the way we can articulate our business becomes, if you will, unified. The insights we derive become unified. And it really starts with that little piece and people go like, why is it important? And then you look at the waterfall effect. And once we fix this, here's how now we're fixing all these other problems inside the company. Right. And here's what we can understand once the data is unified. I think also what I've seen is a lot of different business units or specialties across an organization or whatever. They're or in, in the instance where you're merging multiple organizations, people are afraid that they'll lose their unique aspects to what they do or what have you. And when we walk down the path of whether it's data or CX or whatever, when we were creating a unified solution, it's always, yes, it's unified, but there will still be specialization. You'll still have your lane, your carve out. It'll just be, what are those initial layers, kind of like you're saying, that we can draw comparisons across the organization. And then if there's your stream of, you know, unique data, so be it, that it only makes sense. That's spot on. I mean, and just, I don't want to sound like I'm someone just pontificating and I've been through over 50 mergers and acquisitions in my career, some that I've led, some that I just watched and some that I was deeply involved with. And it isn't easy. At the end of the day, I think what people are really concerned about, what I've learned, is they don't want to have to shoot their friends. Because we all know in mergers and acquisitions, there's duplication. And when you're taking data and trying to make it universal, what you're really enabling is for the consolidation of a lot of functions. Because now we don't need three different teams consolidating data in three different ways, right? Now we can really harmonize the information. But what I like to teach people, and one of the things that I think has made me successful in my career, is that it's not about putting people out of the jobs. That might still occur. I can't stop that. But the reality is my approach is I want to always put myself out of a job because if I get to that stage where I've empowered my team and they now can take over what I'm doing, that means I get new opportunities. And for those people who are good performers, when there's consolidation, first of all, there's a great learning opportunity. If you embrace that learning opportunity, you're probably going to end up in a much better place than you would have than if things had just considered in status quo. You're going to learn so much more. You're going to grow as a person. And even if you don't end up staying with that organization, you're going to be much better positioned to go find another job in the marketplace. M&A for me is a massive opportunity to learn and at an accelerated basis that you will never get and never be able to get in a status quo organization. And especially with workforce concerns being how they are, if you can be someone who embraces that and leans into it, I think that your job security is just that much more established and or like you said, if you're that much more attractive to the next organization. And if you've gone through it, right? And you realize like, oh my gosh, we're going to go through this. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And you get to the other side, your confidence level and who you are and what you're capable of enduring and learning at the same time and be like, instead of it's, hey, it's going to be really hard. Yeah, it's going to be hard. But most importantly, I grew immensely as a person. My skill set is that much better. And 
I can breathe easier at night. I know now that I can, I'm not probably going to be the first person put away. Or if I am the person that goes, I have a lot more confidence in that it's going to work out. And I think that's really important in life. When I look at so many people today, including myself at moments in my career, for sure, and younger people who I try to mentor, it's like, just have to trust the process. It's going to work out. It may not work out the way you expected it to, but it may work out actually in a way that's completely unexpected. So if you were to ask me, is there anything I'd change in my life? I tell you no. And the reason I tell you no is not because it worked out the way I planned it to, but because the person I became as a result of these unexpected things in my life have more formally changed who I am and made me a better friend, a better father, a better parent, a better child to my parents. So you know what? I just embrace the journey. A hundred percent. I couldn't have imagined what my life would look like today in a million years if you had asked me when I was 15, even 20, 25, like things just evolved. And the more I learned to embrace change and really appreciate what had led me to that point, be grateful for the experiences that good, bad, and, and ugly that led me to the point that I am at today, the more I can appreciate this present moment and the journey itself, right? Yeah, and I'm hoping that I s still have a lot left to go here, so. Just by background, David, you know, some people say, oh yeah, that's easy to say, well, what did you do? In 2012, I lost four very close friends of mine. And here I am thinking to myself, what's the purpose of life if it's gonna end this early? And if you look at my CV, it'll talk about the things that I did during 12 and thereafter. But one of the things doesn't read on there was that a lot of the work that I did for between 2012 and the beginning of 2016, I did remotely before remote work was in. But I just didn't do it remotely. I actually left my Wall Street career and went to British Columbia, lived in the town of Whistler. And I worked pretty much at night and I skied and trained all day. And I wrote a book about that journey and just about how transformative that change was for me. And I can tell you that when I went there, I thought to myself, I left my career in Wall Street and what's this going to mean? And I woke up repeatedly for the first number of months just with these horrific nightmares that it had ruined my career. I was going to end up hopeless and destitute. And the reality was that none of that happened. This, these startups that I went and worked with, some of them succeeded, some of them didn't but I was still able to put food on the table. I was still able to put money in the bank. And I actually changed my whole lifestyle. Instead of being on trains, planes, and automobiles around the globe, I actually was living where I wanted to live. And I was living the dream of skiing 100 days during the winter. Sometimes it takes those events in your life that, you know, make you say, hey, look, life is short. But my point in sharing the story is, if I could do it, you can do it. I suffered a lot of trauma I talked to you earlier about. I lost a lot of friends in my life. Some, most who are very close to me, you know, and I was like, okay, life hasn't worked out. I don't have any kids yet. This hasn't worked. At least plans I had. But the reality was I just took a chance on myself. And if you don't take the chance on yourself, no one else will. 100%. Love that, Brad. So I have a couple final questions for you. One would be just to get back to the financial services for a minute. Where do you see the financial services industry going in the future and or what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes? So this kind of brings me into the, the world of digital assets, which I think maybe a number of your viewers want to hear about. I was first introduced to Bitcoin pretty early on. I passed on it because I wasn't sure of the utility, although I saw it can be a store of value. And then when 
network started to change, Ethereum came to market and we moved from what's called proof of work, which was the Bitcoin approach to proof of state, which was really more of a distributed compute approach. It made a lot of sense. To me. And when I look at the future of finance, I actually think that blockchain is the most revolutionary thing that I've seen in my career. And I've been at this a long time. It will be an evolution in terms of how we adopt it. But when I joined Partigo Trust Company in 2018, the reason that I did that was what I began to really understand was that this distributed type system is not only more safe and sound. For example, imagine if regulators today had a real-time view on what market risks were, right? They didn't have to wait weeks or in most cases months to they get that kind of data. Or imagine we had a COVID situation, the use of data coming in on mortgage payments in a more real-time nature, i.e. via blockchain, would enable regulators to actually see which city blocks were people not being able to make their mortgages on, or in which city blocks were revenues falling for particular styles of business that might most be most vulnerable. And I'm a big proponent about being financially, fiscally responsible. And instead of the government dropping trillions of dollars, trillions and trillions of dollars to those, including those who definitely didn't need the money, right? You could be more right. surgical. And then you could really change the way things work. And I know there's people who fear, well, they're going to have my data. People are going to get your data anyway, somehow. And if it can be right. used in a positive way that can have real impact, that's very powerful. The other thing that blockchain for me changes, and the real reason I feel so inspired by what's possible is that a system was built in a particular way based on what was best in breed at the time. Then the whole profit formula gets built around it. So what you're really changing is the profit formula here. But imagine for a moment that you have a network, investors and companies can interact in an anonymous way. People say, well, it has to be completely transparent. Well, today, for example, in the current system, there's three pillars that make up the system, basically. At the core, you have the clearing mechanism, you have the settlement finality, and you have the register of ownership. Blockchain pretty much gets rid of the first two or consolidates that. And what that really enables is it allows corporations in a disguised way, or what I mean by that is in a way that investors don't have to raise their hand to direct communication with who their investor base is. So if we think about things like the mem stocks, what we learned from that experience was the small guy wanted to have a voice and big companies started to listen, but the small investor matters. So imagine a world where Wall Street no longer is the issuer or the intermediary of security issuance, most importantly, and where those costs actually get passed back in the way we do business and that the underlying businesses who are issuing, let's say bonds, right? Don't need per se those intermediaries. And as importantly, the individuals who are trying to buy these assets don't have to pay the associated fees. So for me, the promise of something like that, where in a distributed network where investors and issuers can interoperate through a trusted network, without having all these middlemen is a very powerful thing, right? It changes the way capital is formed throughout the globe. It actually has a more direct relationship. I would argue it probably would build more trust over time in the system and investors' voices will be heard. And a lot of people said to me, hey, Brad, that sounds great, but then they're going to know who you are. If I own a large block of stock and I'm a hedge fund or Goldman Sachs or whomever, I don't want the company to know. Well, a purpose-built ledger doesn't have to be that way. It can be an option to opt in. Just like today, people get a paper notice from a transfer agent that says, hey, here's a vote that's coming up. 
But now these people could actually pull their investors and say, hey, we're thinking about doing this. Would you be interested? Whether that's the issuance of bond or potentially new businesses are going to launch and gain the support in a more, what I'll call collaborative way between two of the stakeholders. And I would say at Franklin, they were the first to issue a truly tokenized security. When I say truly tokenized, where the entire ledger system is not serving as a shadow books and records. There are many people that are doing this that are using the traditional means. Here, Franklin's trying to do something very different. And this is a journey. This isn't something that's going to come quickly, but the ability to change the underlying infrastructure isn't just like, oh, we're just changing settlement. No, you actually are going to change the way that capital is formed. And that's a very powerful thing at the end of the day, right? Profit formula, those who are making the money today are concerned about that. And they should be because if it was their business, if it was my business, I would be concerned. But the opportunity is to say, hey, how do I actually start being a leader in the space? And how do I do things that might really change what my business is? But in the long term, if it's going to happen anyway, shouldn't I be at the forefront of it than just being a follower and a fighter and hiring whoever I need to from a legislative standpoint, a lobbyist, if you will, to say why it's bad? Well, it's good to have you as an advisor. Well, I appreciate that. I think there's a lot of smart people there too, you know, right? I didn't show up and start all that. There were people who saw some of this, including their CEO, Jenny Johnson, who's been a big supporter. That's awesome. Brad? This has been great. Final question we like to ask our guests is, if you could go back five or 10 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? My younger self, I'd tell them to be patient. It's going to work out. Just take the time, listen to other people's thoughts. Yours aren't always right. And just be patient with the process. It's, it's going to happen at its own pace. And if you can find patience in your career, if you can find patience as a, a leader, that helps really, not only helps you, helps your colleagues, helps the organization. So my advice is find patience. Brad, thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, David, for having me. I appreciate it as well. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.